If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar. The awful roar. The awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it, it may, may be, be both moral, moral and physical. physical. But it must be. It must be a struggle. But it must be a struggle. No struggle. No, no progress. Frederick Douglass, orator and abolitionist a man who needs no introduction. He teaches us that every real gain in the history of human progress has been born of earnest struggle. This show is devoted to celebrating his life, but it's also devoted to taking a hard look at the state of our own earnest struggle for racial equality and human liberation. Coming up, Frederick Douglass's violin. We search the historical record for traces of Douglass the musician, and in the process, we stumble into the thorny history of blackface minstrelsy. He refers to them as the filthy scum of white society who have stolen from us a complexion denied to them by nature. We'll talk with Jenny Lightwise Guff, an instructor at the University of Mississippi, and we'll hear from Paul Burgett, a professor at the Eastman School of Music, about the role of the violin as an instrument of social mobility. So it's not surprising that it was his grandson, Joseph Douglas, who almost as a successor to his grandfather's aspirations, musically at any rate, became a concert violinist. All that and more on this episode of Our Earnest Struggle. When the Douglas family moved into their first home in Rochester, some of their white neighbors were commenting, there goes the neighborhood. But little Jenny Marsh Parker liked the idea of having a firebrand abolitionist for a neighbor. And like other children who lived near the Douglases on Alexander Street, she loved to hear him play his violin. If he knew that a group of children were gathered before his window on a warm summer night when he was singing to his violin, Parker recalled, he was sure to give them what he knew they were waiting for. Nellie was a lady, or old Kentucky home, coming to the door and bowing his acknowledgement of their hearty applause. There's something intriguing about this image of Douglas, backlit with his violin, glimpsed through an open window. It's an unusually intimate picture of the man we're more used to imagining in bronze, larger than life on a pedestal. And I wondered, what other traces of Frederick Douglass, the musician, did history leave for us? Do the echoes of Frederick's violin still hang in the air down on Alexander Street? I decided to go down there recently with all my high-tech recording gear to see if I could tune in some frequency from the past. Turns out, not even the house the Douglases lived in survives. It was replaced with a parking lot in 1954. I did hear some music through an open window, but no violin. Still, it got me to thinking, those tunes little Jenny heard were in some ways the first American pop songs. And for Douglas to have been playing them at his Alexander Street home shows us that he kept up with the trends. The Douglases moved to Rochester in 1848. Nellie came out in 49, Kentucky Home in 53. Of course, the mass media at the time wasn't radio. It was sheet music published by firms in Pittsburgh and Boston. Learning to play tunes like these was a valued leisure activity among middle-class families and among those with middle-class aspirations. Here's Paul Burgett, violinist and a professor at the Eastman School of Music. Typically, 
there would be a piano in the home and members of the family, particularly uh, female members of the family, were expected to to possess um, performance skills, especially at the keyboard. We know the Douglases also owned a piano during their years in Rochester, and that Frederick's wife Anna would accompany him on it. Burgett says that for the Douglas family, the violin wasn't just a musical instrument. It was also an instrument of social mobility. He was part of a an emerging black community whose aspirations were aligned with, um, I'll use the term American dream for lack of a better term, but uh, were aligned with ideas of upward mobility and opportunity. So it's not surprising that it was his grandson, Joseph Douglas, who almost as successor to his grandfather's aspirations, musically at any rate, uh, actually studied the violin and became one of the first African-Americans who had a career. I think his first appearance was at the 1893 Chicago Exposition, and that sort of catapulted him to national attention. He went on and concertized, and he traveled, uh, he traveled internationally, and eventually settled as a, a teacher of violin at Howard University in Washington. So um, really, in terms of musical uh, acumen and a career, less was it his grandfather, Frederick Douglass, and more was it Joseph Douglass. As compelling a story of intergenerational musical uplift as this was, it left me with a question. Where, back in the days before Howard University even existed, in the days before emancipation, where would a man considered chattel in the eyes of the law cultivate an interest in the violin, let alone obtain one of his own? Well, we know Frederick Douglass's first exposure to the instrument was in Maryland, before his escape from slavery. His last autobiography notes that it was common for slaves to make music during the holiday granted them between Christmas and New Year's. In that context, Douglass saw music making not as a tool of self-improvement, but as a tool of social control. He writes, quote, The fiddling, dancing, and jubilee beating was going on in all directions. I believe these holidays to be among the most effective means in the hands of slaveholders of keeping down the spirit of insurrection among the slaves. They are conductors or safety valves to carry off the explosive elements inseparable from the human mind when reduced to the condition of slavery, end quote. Douglas counts himself among the duped when he writes that, quote, we were induced to drink, I among the rest. And when the holidays were over, we all staggered up and went back to our various fields of work, feeling rather glad to go from that which our masters artfully deceived us was freedom back into the arms of slavery. It was as well to be a slave to master, we thought, as to be a slave to rum and whiskey, end quote. Since Douglas situates himself as a participant in the holiday indulgences, he describes, we could speculate that maybe it was here that he first picked up the violin. But it's worth emphasizing the fact that Douglas calls it fiddling, a term associated with idle activity in the English vernacular, as in just fiddling around. So maybe he didn't think it was worth mentioning. The official story is that Frederick Douglas taught himself to play the violin in three days, while still a fugitive in Scotland. A contemporary of Douglas wrote that, quote, it is related that in earlier days, while an exile in Scotland, passing along the street in a despondent mood, he saw a violin hanging out at a store door, and going in, bought it. He then went home, shut himself up, played for three days until he was in tune himself, and again went out into the world a cheerful man." End quote. That would have been in the mid-1840s. While that might have been his first violin, it definitely wasn't his last. Toward the end of his life, he obtained a copy of a Stradivarius that's now in the care of the U.S. Park Service. The craftsmanship of the Italian Stradivari family was legendary in Douglas's day, as it is today. It could be that the Stradivarius's association with early 19th century rock star Niccolo Paganini also had something to do with its appeal for Douglas. During an 1886 visit to the Museum of Genoa in Italy, 
Douglas found himself mesmerized by one of Paganini's violins. While not a Stradivarius, it was reported to be Paganini's favorite violin, and it was nicknamed the Cannon. That's the sound of the cannon in the hands of Shlomo Mintz during a performance of Paganini's own violin concerto. I would have given more for that old violin of wood, horsehair, and catgut than for any one of the long line of pictures I saw before me, Douglas wrote after his visit to the Museum of Genoa. He compared Paganini's cannon to the pen with which Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation and to the sword Washington kept by his side throughout America's independence struggle. He wrote, quote, I desired that violin on account of the man who had played upon it, the man who revealed its powers and possibilities as they were never known before. This was his favorite instrument, minister to his soul in his battles with sin and sorrow. It had delighted thousands, even stirred the dull hearts of kings and revealed to them their kinship to common mortals as perhaps had been done by no other instrument." End quote. This idea that music, especially music filled with pathos that evokes suffering and reminds us of our own mortality, that it has the power to reveal our shared humanity, it's a kind of refrain in Douglas's writing on music. I think this all gives us a better sense of Douglas's relationship to music, a relationship rooted in a particular social context and historical moment. But there's one little detail in Jenny Parker's story that grabs my attention and won't let go. The songwriter for both tunes she mentions, Stephen Foster, wasn't that the guy who made his bread writing minstrel songs for blackface troops? In what world would our hero Douglas, the firebrand abolitionist, be caught dead playing music written by a composer of so-called Ethiopian melodies? When we come back, we'll talk with Jenny Lightwise Goff a scholar of both Frederick Douglass and Stephen Foster, to see if we can get some answers. Right after this. By the rivers of Babylon, where he sat down, and there he wept when he remembered Zion. Carry us away, captivity, require from us a song. How can they sing King Alpha's song in a strange land? Carvin Eisen, Re-Energizing Douglas Initiative. That was Psalms 137, and it was Frederick Douglass's favorite song. What I take from that is that he is equating the plight of the children of Israel with the children of Africa, and he was making a universal parallel. So I'll just say in this year of Frederick Douglass, there is work that still needs to be done, and it's for all cultures and for all people. Tune in for a new episode of Our Earnest Struggle every Saturday at 10 a.m. only on WXIR 100.9 FM, Rochester. You're listening to Our Earnest Struggle. I'm Darian Lehman. Was it possible that some of Frederick Douglass's favorite songs were written in mock slave dialect by a composer associated with blackface minstrelsy? A guy who included an Italianized version of the N-word as an expressive marking on his sheet music? I mean, what was I missing? Nowadays, blackface minstrelsy is synonymous with the worst in anti-black racism. The dehumanizing caricatures of Jim Crow, Zip Coon, and the Piccaninny Topsy might not have originated on the minstrel show stage, but they were certainly popularized there. Those caricatures have proven so durable that many are still with us. It was only a couple years back that some Rochester residents had to fight to take down a Piccaninny painting from a public carousel. Changes could be approved today regarding a controversial panel controversy on a carousel. At Beach over an image that some say is racist. racist. While others say it's historic and White should not be touched. A rooster and two black children with caricature-like features. Monroe County will not remove controversial panels on the Ontario Beach I have to admit, the strangeness of it all made me call old Jenny Parker's memory into question. So I decided to turn to a different Jenny 
for help making sense of things. So, um, yeah, let's do that thing where you uh, pronounce your name and spell it if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, it's it's Jenny Lightwise Goss, L-I-G. This Jenny was also a Rochester resident at one time. I'm in New Orleans for my spring break, and you're making me nostalgic for Rochester. I mean, there's no more beautiful place than New Orleans in spring, but here, here we are. As a graduate student here, she wrote an article entitled Long Time I Travel on the Way, Stephen Foster's Conversion Narrative. It looks at the racial politics of Foster songs and Foster scholars. What really caught my attention is that it includes statements Douglas himself made about minstrel songs and performers. But before I get too far ahead of myself, just who was Stephen Foster anyway? Stephen Foster kind of wrote the soundtrack of the 19th century, and it's likely that everyone who's listening to this has heard at least one of his most famous songs, uh, The Camptown Races, Old Kentucky Home, Oh, Susanna, and Swanee River. Um, when you cross the border from Georgia into Florida, Swanee River, the line, lines from it and the musical notes from it are written on the welcome sign. So songs are still quite famous, and the key years of his songwriting are 1844 to 1864. And he only once traveled south of Cincinnati, um, just once, to New Orleans. His songs produce a really mediated image of the South for Northern consumers who are obsessed with the South, and then a romanticized and nostalgic image of home for Southern consumers who always buy kind of um, idealized versions of their own place. And Foster dies in January 1864, uh, having descended into alcoholism and illness in New York's Bowery. And by that point, he's written um, not only songs for the minstrel show stage, but also songs for the parlor, songs, you know, for families. One of Stephen Foster's most problematic songs is also one of his best known. The lyrics are quite anodyne. I mean, I'm only 38, but we used to sing it in music class with the notion that it's a song about lost love. And, you know, the song begins, I came from Alabama with my banjo on my knee. Banjo on my knee, I flying to Louisiana, my true love for to see. It rained all night, the day I left, the weather, it was dry. The sun's so hot, I froze to death, Susanna, don't you cry. And it's not implicit in the lyrics, the way they're given to us in the 21st century. But it's a song about what the historian Ira Berlin calls the second migration. So after the Trail of Tears and the removal of Native Americans from the states that later became the Cotton Kingdom, African Americans were increasingly sold south, moved by chain gang, and by boats that were as treacherous as those used in the Middle Passage. Um, and when African Americans were brought to these states, they were used as labor to carve out roads and to work in cotton labor camps, which people now call plantations. And slaves tended to be sold from exhausted tobacco economies to the emerging cotton kingdoms. And this is during Douglas's lifetime, during Douglas's period of enslavement. So a man like Frederick Douglass, who was enslaved in the Tidewater of Maryland, had a 50-50 chance of being sold every year. Can't stress that enough. It's a terrifying and unstable life for Frederick Douglass. And the narrator of O Susanna has been sold away from his true love. Um, and we know this because of the minstrel show dialect, because Foster marks it in the libretta um, as a minstrel song. Um, and yet the song is performed with a light comic touch, even though the second verse, which people almost never perform now, talks about the death of 500 black human beings um, on in a riverboat accident. I jumped aboard the telegraph and traveled down the river. The electric fluid magnified and killed 500 men. The bull giant bust the horse run off, I really thought I'd die. I shut my eyes to hold my breath, Susanna, don't you cry. And then the, the chorus picks up again, and it sweeps us away from black suffering into this kind of jaunty stage show song. Later on in his career, Stephen Foster tried to distance himself from blackface musical theater, in part because he saw it as a liability to his reputation as a composer of parlor songs for a respectable middle-class market. The parlor song and the minstrel show song are seen as being uh, produced for two discrete audiences. Um, to some extent, it's a private-public distinction, because minstrel show theatrics are put on in northern urban spaces, like you noted Buffalo and Rochester. Um, and parlor songs are national audiences written for the home. So the youngest daughter might be taught to play piano 
and she might play I Dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair for her entire family for their amusement. And so scholars have noted that his songs grew less racist over time and that he became interested in writing these kind of sentimental parlor songs instead of minstrel show songs. Um, and they note, too, that in one gorgeous song, Nellie Was a Lady, he makes room for black women's humanity and dignity. And I don't actually disagree with that, that assessment necessarily of many of his songs, um, since they are by 19th century standards quite sympathetic to black narrators. But I think his progress was uneven. And one of the arguments that my essay makes is that progress narratives are always uneven. Americans nonetheless love accounts of conversion, of lightning fast improvement, of this kind of constant forward motion. In essence, Americans love stories of power conceding nothing without demand, right? To go back to the Douglas quote. Um, and those of investments clearly don't hold when we're looking at the, the long life of racism in America. So what did Frederick Douglass himself have to say about blackface performance and performers? He refers to them as the filthy scum of white society who have stolen from us a complexion denied to them by nature in which to make money and pander to the corrupt taste of their fellow white citizens. Well, no ambiguity there, right? So why would he also say in an 1855 speech to the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society that, quote, it would seem almost absurd to say it considering the use that's been made of them, but we have allies in the Ethiopian songs, those songs that constitute our national music and without which we have no national music. They are heart songs, and the finest feelings of human nature are expressed in them. Lucy Neal, Old Kentucky Home, and Uncle Ned awaken the sympathies for the slave in which anti-slavery principles take root and flourish, end quote. So I think what he's making room for is the possibility of a subversive listening practice whereby white audiences who first encountered black identity on the blackface stage would have eventually maybe rejected that and moved to a more humane focus, right? It, it's possible, I think, even now for scholars of my generation to have first encountered a kind of black literary tradition through, like, Mark Twain's Jim in Huck Finn, right? And to then go into the 19th century in search of black voices like Frederick Douglass, like William Box Brown, like Harriet Jacobs, like Bethany Vasey, you know, any number of writers of, of slave narratives. But in terms of the white abolitionists that Douglass, that Douglass would have met, they would probably have been as familiar with blackface performance as they were with black people. And to some extent, blackface might have been their introduction to black people. Um, they might not have heard anything about the second migration, anything about the pain of being moved away from one's family, but for O oh, Susanna. But in Eric Watt's book, Love and Theft, um, he notes that blackface minstrelsy grew more racist over time. So when Douglas wrote those words, there were actually minstrels who would, in blackface, express anti-slavery sentiments on the stage. And as time went on, that became less and less common. It became an institution that was much more intimately connected to white patriarchy, white supremacist, class supremacy, I mean, down through the list. I think what Frederick Douglass's surprising position on minstrel songs tells us is that he was a person willing to join with anyone to do right and with no one to do wrong, as he himself put it. To update that into today's social justice terminology, they show us a man who was not only willing to call out racism, he also recognized the strategic importance of using popular culture to call in potential sympathizers, including members of the white working class, the main audience for blackface theater in the North. After all, these were the people who would be drafted into the Union Army during the Civil War. In 1863, in New York City, there's a draft riot in which predominantly Irish immigrants begin um, resisting the draft and often enacting horrible acts of violence against black citizens in New York City. Um, and a lot of those people were not sympathetic to the South. They were not secessionists. They may not have even been pro-slavery. They may have wanted free soil or recolonization of Africa by fellow black citizens. But they were a constituency that 
ended slavery in the South, right? So there's an extent to which the intention of a lot of white people in the 19th century doesn't quite matter. Right. Um, it's what it's it's what black revolutionary voices like Douglas did with that moment. Right. It was a moment of possibility. And some people were useful to a moment of possibility, even if they didn't intend to, to make to make change. Right. And I think to some extent, maybe maybe Stephen Foster was one of those guys. So what was it about the two Foster songs Jenny Parker remembers Douglas playing that would have resonated with him personally? To speak to old Kentucky home and Nellie was a lady. Nellie was a lady is a hinge for a lot of scholars who want to see Stephen Foster as converting from racism to anti-racism. Nellie was a lady is an elegy written in dialect by a black man for his dead wife. Uh, she is described as Virginia's lovely daughter and as my dark Virginia bride. She's dark-skinned in the 19th century, which is a context where whiteness or light-skinnedness is seen as women's entry point to beauty. Quite a contrast to Jeannie with the light brown hair. She's described as a lovely daughter, that is, someone prized by a family and a community. I think what links that song to Old Kentucky Home, a song that's frequently sung at the um, Kentucky Derby and used to be performed frequently in blackface, what links them is the word lady. So as in the chorus, weep no more, my lady, weep no more today. Weep no more, my lady, And if you imagine the song as being directed to a plantation mistress, as blackface performers often did, it's a nostalgic and racist song. But if you imagine it as a song directed to a wife or a sister or a daughter from whom the narrator has been removed, it's a song about a different kind of longing, right, Um, authored by a black narrator. And so I think about Douglas singing those songs um, and thinking about his own isolation and exile. And though the chorus of Old Kentucky Home describes so-called happy slaves making merry, all happy and bright, Douglas was inclined to say that singing was the means by which the enslaved were asked to perform consent to the experience of enslavement. And to perform consent was often a requirement of, the oppress- of an oppressive system, to hide one's grief and mask it as joy, right? So songs associated with slavery caused Douglas grief, anxiety, and fear, as he describes in his first narrative. But they were also sounds that evoked his history, his lost family, uh, a home to which he could not return, um, a family that had been taken from him and dissolved. Uh, so I think about those songs as perhaps evoking for him um, what had been lost by his necessary fugitive flight towards freedom. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, is it a coincidence that so many early minstrel show performers were working-class Irish ethnics? And how does blackface performance relate to current debates over cultural appropriation? Stay with us. I dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair Born like a vapor on the summer's air I see 
we're tripping where the bright streams play happy as the daisies that dance on her way That was the soul man, Sam Cooke, singing Stephen Foster's 1854 hit tune, Genie with a Light Brown Hair. You're listening to Our Earnest Struggle. I'm Darian Lehman. We're talking with Jenny Lightwise Goff, an instructor at the University of Mississippi, about Frederick Douglass and blackface performance. I wanted to know what she makes of the fact that so many early minstrel show performers were working-class Irish ethnics. How did performing African-American blackness help this stigmatized group of immigrants the so-called blacks of Europe, shore up their identity within America's racial and class hierarchies. So I I have a lot to say about this for a couple of reasons. Um, This summer I'm teaching a study abroad class on Douglas and Ireland, and I am also finalizing my Irish citizenship. My family is from southwestern Ireland on my mom's side, different kind of like mutt of Europe in both, um, both parts of my family. And so what's fascinating about the history of white ethnics, particularly the Irish, but not only the Irish in the U.S., is how often they have like recourse to blackness. That's how they think. That's how they think about their difference, right? On the minstrel show stage, it was often the case that white ethnics, who had been told to assimilate into white supremacy, so that there's one line, not 14, right? So that their racial affiliations with upper class whites could be consolidated. It was often the case that those white ethnics used blackness as a way to make sense of their identity. Uh, Noel Ignatiev's book, How the Irish Became White, has been important to my thinking about minstrel, the minstrel show stage. And, you know, one of the things he says is that the, the Irish were not regarded as, as white at the period that there are so many Irish people performing on, on minstrel stages. But the way that the Irish became white was to work uh, in municipal functions in urban space like as police officers, right? Um, so the more the more the Irish became invested in whiteness, the further that they leapt from ethnic spaces. And a, a lot of that work, whiteness studies that was done in the, in the early 90s, is done by people who are descended from Irish immigrants and people who are descended from recent Jewish immigrants. And if you look at those two histories, you see a lot of a kind of um, compulsory assimilation which takes those communities away from political alliances with African-Americans, political alliances that Douglas thought were really necessary. And so I actually would really urge people to look at Al Jolson's 1927 movie, The Jazz Singer, in which he rejects becoming um, a cantor in um, a traditional Jewish community in favor of becoming a jazz singer um, in blackface. And there's no possibility for him to be a jazz singer out of blackface because there's no room for him to be an unassimilated Jew on the American stage, right, without remaining in his ethnic ghetto. Part of me thinks that the curious thing is not that contemporary 21st century white singers wear grills and twerk, but that they do it without putting burnt cork on their faces. Um, So from my perspective, you know, Mick Jagger has been wearing cultural blackface for 50 years. It's just that putting on invisible cultural blackface is the norm of U.S. popular culture after putting on visible cultural blackface became verboten, right? What we learn from looking at the long history of blackface minstrelsy is that mass-mediated American culture has, since its very beginnings, depended on a restless cycle of imitation and appropriation, at times malicious, at times not. It's part of what Lightwise Goff calls the curious, uneven, and unwilling collaboration between white and black Americans. What Frederick Douglass suggests, and Albert Murray too, you know, Albert Murray said, there are no two species so alike as white Americans and black Americans. It's that our appropriative popular culture is a hybrid creation. It's a curious, unwilling, and uneven collaboration between black people and white people. Um, You know, black artists like Burt Williams and Bill Bojangles Robinson wrote and performed on the minstrel show stage with a great deal of skill and artistry. James Weldon Johnson was a fan of and friend of Al Jolson, you know, a, a major blackface performer. 
Stormy Weather, the gorgeous 1943 Fox movie musical made with an entirely black cast for a largely black audience, is full of blackface. Um, as well as stunning performances by the Nichols Brothers, by Lena Horne, and by Rochester's own Cab Calloway in a rare recorded performance by him at his height. Um, You know, in our own moment, Big Frida, the great New Orleans bounce performer, uh, Big Frida criticized Miley Cyrus's twerking because it was done badly, not because it was done, right? Not trying to just diss Miley the whole time, but it's just like, you know, learn the moves first before you really try to get up there and do it. Come see Big Frida for your lesson. It's not that blackface is redeemable or that blackface is irredeemably evil. It's just that blackface is ubiquitous in popular culture. To help illustrate the matter, Lightwise Goff points us toward a canonic work of American pop culture, the 1974 film Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddle, wore a shining star. I love this film. I can't stress that enough. Um, Blazing Saddles is co-written by Mel Brooks and Richard Pryor. And the movie studio refused to allow Richard Pryor, who was seen as a toxic asset because of his drug addiction, to play the lead of Black Bart, um, the sheriff of Rockville. Um, And Black Bart is sent by a corrupt governor to bring unrest to this all-white town. And because the studio wouldn't Richard Pryor play him, uh, he's played by Cleavon Little, and Pryor writes the script. And Cleavon Little is black, but he's wearing a kind of cultural blackface, what uh, various critics have called the cool pose of black masculinity. He's unruffled, untroubled, unbowed, and unbeaten. No matter what the kind of slings and arrows of a racist culture land on him, he doesn't even get upset, right? He just kind of plays it off. He has a trickster quality to him. Uh, there's, there's even a moment when, in the film, like he explicitly references himself as Bugs Bunny, right? <laughs> um, kind of clowning these white people. Um, and early in the movie, before Bart is named sheriff, he's being used as um, a forced railroad laborer. And a white overseer demands that he and his fellow workers perform a labor song. Now, come on, boys. Where's your spirit? I don't hear no singing. When you were slaves, you sang like birds. Come on, how about a good old work song? The men begin by performing Cole Porter's I Get a Kick Out of You. I get no kick from champagne. Mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all. So tell me why should it be true that I get a belt out of you? And the white men reject this as too sophisticated, insufficiently black. And of course, what they mean by that is insufficiently blackface. Hold it, hold it. What the hell is that shit? I meant a song, a real song. The white men demand Camptown races, uh, Stephen Foster song, and they begin to dance with each other in an absurd parody of the blackness that they believe exists. How about the Camptown ladies? The Camptown ladies. The Camptown ladies. Oh, you know. The Camptown ladies sing this song, doo-dah, doo-dah. The Camptown racetrack five miles long, all the doo-dah day. And the performance evokes a whole strange history. The chorus of Camptown races with the repeated doo-dah, doo-dah, uh, is, according to Foster scholars, a real work chant by black men who worked on the Ohio River. Foster was at the time working in Cincinnati, across the Ohio River from Louisville and from enslaved Kentucky more broadly. Um, and Foster could apparently hear the chant of do da by black rivermen from his window. And he apparently incorporated the chant into Camptown Races. So we now have a vestige of the, of the rivermen's song, right, in a blackface minstrel song. And so when I watch, the, when I watch Blazing Saddles, I think, I wonder, did Mel Brooks and Richard Pryor know this? And I can't answer that question. I would say this, though. Don't 
count them out. Um, I think of Richard Pryor as one of the most important thinkers of the 20th century, who's consistently underrated because he performed in a comic valence. And I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if, if Pryor knew that in some way. So I think Blazing Saddles is, um, is getting at the strange history, the kind of shifting relationships between blackness, whiteness, blackface, and around that circle. If our shared popular culture, beginning with those problematic minstrel songs Frederick Douglass called Our National Music, was created by white people imitating what they thought is black culture and black people playing off and with those imitations, well, a funny thought occurred to me. What if Douglas was putting on all those white children on Alexander Street with his performance of Nellie Was a Lady, an old Kentucky home? It's obviously not consistent with the seriousness that characterizes his approach to self-presentation through other media, like photography, for example. But the thing about American popular culture is that it all rests on this cycle of love and theft, praise and parody. It can be hard to tell who's clowning whom. When we come back, we'll talk more with Paul Burgett about the role of the violin in his trajectory, from segregated St. Louis to the Eastman School of Music. We'll also talk with him about the prospects for racial progress today, right after this. Fellow citizens, pardon me, allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you, this day, rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, but not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? You're listening to Our Earnest Struggle. I'm Darian Lehman. Aside from their shared love of the violin, Paul Burgett has other points of connection with Frederick Douglass. For one thing, he interpreted some of Douglass's best-known speeches for a 2010 jazz album called A Sky With More Stars by the Tyrone Brown Ensemble. We just heard an excerpt from the track American Dilemma. But more significantly, Frederick and Joseph Douglass's story of intergenerational social mobility through music is one Burgett himself can identify with. Burgett was born in St. Louis in 1947. His parents' biracial marriage was illegal there at the time. Both of them were active musicians. His mother was a church organist, and his father, who worked as a mechanic by day, was an accomplished baritone who aspired to be like Eastman alum William Warfield, with whom he once performed. Burgett's parents both supported his professional musical ambitions as a natural extension of their own pursuits. But in segregated St. Louis, a black kid with a violin was viewed with suspicion as a threat to the established social order. I was stopped by the police a lot. It happened frequently. The uh, police car would pull up, often an unmarked car, because someone someone would have made a call that there was this black kid who was walking down the street holding a violin with a violin case. And so the cops would stop. I knew exactly what the drill was. I would put my stuff down, put my hands on, on the hood of the car, and uh, spread my legs and just, you know, wait to get patted down. And um, on one occasion, I was actually put in the car and taken downtown. I was arrested, taken downtown and had to call my father. The, the interesting thing about this, both my parents, neither of them were alive any longer, but they both told me that this happened and that my father came and got me. I so repressed that memory that I, to this day, don't recall it. Burgett describes coming to Rochester in 1964 to study violin at Eastman as a relief. When I got to Rochester, I found that a lot of those pressures, they, they didn't exist with the kind of force that they did in St. Louis, or if they did exist, it was not as obvious. In St. Louis, it was obvious. It was in your face. I remember shortly after I got here as a freshman, I needed a haircut, as do we all. Well, I, I didn't know my way around, and back in those days, we didn't have we didn't have folks to sort of help guide you to what I had always done, which was go to a black barber. Well, 
the hotel at the corner of East and Gibbs, and the businesses on the street level, one of the businesses uh, that was connected to the hotel was a barbershop. And so I remember going over to that barbershop and looking in, and there were three three chairs and three white barbers. And there were three customers in there at the time, all white. And I took a look in there, and I thought, oh, boy, I need a haircut, but I don't know whether I can go in there. Bear in mind also, 1964 was the year of the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And so I had grown up prior to the passage of the Civil Rights Act when segregation could legally be enforced. So I'm standing outside this barbershop looking in, not sure what to do and not knowing where the black barbers were. But I decided that I would go in. So I went in and I took a seat in one of the waiting chairs. My heart pounding in my chest. Well, one of the chairs was it became vacant and the free barber, freed barber came over to me he looked at me, and all he said was, haircut, sir? And I breathed this sigh of relief. I got up, and I got in the chair, and he said, tell me what you would like me to do. And I did, and I got my haircut. Well, I assure you, that was my barber until that, <laughs> until that barbershop closed. And I realized that the Civil Rights Act actually couldn't deny me service, but I fully... I, I wouldn't have been surprised if he said, we don't serve you here, uh, or I don't know I don't know how to cut your hair. But he didn't say any of that. He just said, haircut, sir. So that was a kind of experience that I had never had in St. Louis. I had a greater sense of relief, if you will, being in Rochester than I did in St. Louis. Of course, in July 1964, a month or so before Burgett arrived, Rochester witnessed one of the first riots of that tumultuous period sparked by police response to a street dance in a predominantly black neighborhood. But in the cloistered environment of the Eastman Conservatory, Burgett says music came before all other considerations. The principal sacrament of that culture, the Eastman culture, was music. So music trumped everything. We understood one another as musicians first, and everything else came after that. Uh, I remember being elected president of the freshman class and I was stunned when that happened because I'd never been elected anything. And that my classmates saw in me someone who they wanted to exercise leadership was just a shock to me. So I was accorded opportunities, not only musically, but opportunities uh, socially as a student at Eastman that enabled a kind of growth that was very, very important to my to my development. Burgett later pursued a doctoral degree at Eastman. It was the first time in his life that he had been able to study African-American popular music seriously. As a graduate student, Darian, mind you, this was in this, what I call the 60s. So it's mid-60s, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, to 75 in the Vietnam War. You know, students were mad back in those days. We were mad about something. Well, what I was mad about was the fact that I had the best education that I could have thanks to the Eastman School of Music. But I wasn't sure what instrument Charlie Parker played. And I thought that as a person of color, I really ought to know that. And that got me involved as a graduate student in the music of black Americans. I wrote a dissertation entitled The Aesthetics of the Music of Black Americans, Critical Analysis of the Writings of Selected Black Scholars. And I spent, I spent three years researching and writing that. That led to um, my, for the last... 35 years, I've been teaching the music of black Americans, and I teach the history of jazz. Burgett also went on to serve as a dean and vice president of the larger university. It's an exceptional trajectory. But as the university announces another tuition hike for next year, and as student loan debt nationally has surpassed credit card debt, I asked Dean Burgett whether a college degree still represents the path to social mobility it did 50 years ago. Here at the University of Rochester, the average indebtedness of a graduating student is somewhere around 20k, $20,000. Ought we to keep our eye on and be concerned about costs, the cost of education? I absolutely think that we, we, we have to do that. Does, do universities and colleges have responsibilities to moderate those costs so that no young person is denied an education? I think absolutely right. But is the investment worth it? In my view, it absolutely is worth it. 
You know, the world is a wonderful place in so many ways, and opportunities are out there. The news is so bad uh, in so many places that what I try to provide is an antidote to some of the some of the naysayers and the bad news, because I don't know that bad news and naysayers that can lead you to paralysis, and paralysis is not a good thing. So anyway, I'm preaching now. <laughs> Burgett says there are reasons to be hopeful about the prospects for racial progress in classical music too. Performance at Eastman when I got here was not diverse at all. In my class, my undergraduate class of 68, of 100 students, there were maybe three uh, of us who were of African descent. I mean, the Rochester Philharmonic, even today, has only one member of African descent, and that's Herb Smith, who's in the Trump section. There is a hunger amongst musicians of African descent for greater opportunity, greater notice, uh, and greater access to this music. There has emerged on the horizon over the past few decades now a growing movement of classical musicians of African descent. There is the Gateways Music Festival, which is here in Rochester, and I happen to chair the board. Now, what that festival does is attract to Rochester professional classical musicians of African descent to perform the repertoire, the literature that, that of the canon, the standard repertoire, but in addition, the music of uh, African-American composers as well. So when you look on that stage, the stage of Kodak Hall at the Eastman Theater, and you see 90 or so professional classical musicians of African descent, I think Frederick Douglass would have looked at that and just been awestruck if he, in fact, weren't even on the stage in the violin section playing himself. Paul Burgett is a violinist and a professor of music at the Eastman Conservatory, and he's a vice president of the University of Rochester. And that does it for this episode of Our Earnest Struggle. Special thanks to Paul Burgett and Jenny Lightwise-Goff. The musical excerpts featured in this episode include recordings by Betsy Hooper, Shlomo Mintz, Vernon Dahlhart, Jan de Gaitani, Alma Gluck, Paul Robeson, Sam Cooke, in the Tyrone Brown Ensemble with Paul Burgett. You can tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. for the latest episode at 100.9 FM Rochester or online at 1009wxir.com. You can also catch up on any episodes you missed on demand on our Mixcloud page. Go to mixcloud.com slash 1009wxir. The views expressed on this show don't necessarily reflect the views of the City of Rochester or the partnering organizations of the Re-Energizing Douglas Bicentennial Committee. If you'd like to be a part of future episodes, send us an email at wxirnews at gmail.com. We'd love your help. For Rochester Community Media, I'm Darian Lehman. Thanks for listening.